it's black and white. It's scrappy. There's not a straight line on the whole goddamn thing. It all looks like it was cut and pasted together out of chunks of Xerox junk. It is just an atrocious mess. And it's beautiful. It is so alive. You still look at it and it makes your heart kind of jump. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we talked with Matt McCauley and Sarah Haberstroh, recently having discovered the Pacific Northwest's most significant shipwreck, Matt and Sarah shared how their passion for their work stemmed from a desire to recover lost treasure, not just the gold in the ship's safe, but also the ordinary objects like steamer trunks, bricks and bottles, property representing the lives which otherwise might be forgotten but for these relics and artifacts pulled from the briny deep. Well, for today's episode, steady your hands and your eyes as we reach into another repository chock full of the ephemeral and anonymous world of images that might disappear into the ether, but for the work of today's guest, one of America's most esteemed and prolific living graphic designers. In part one of a two-part series, our guest shares his upbringing on the mean streets of Tacoma, Washington and he tells how he discovered his calling as a graphic designer in the 1970s and 80s, and then went on to develop a body of original work around what he terms American trash culture, mostly old-fashioned commercial art. And in doing so, he created a vibrant and new visual lexicon, one that helped propel the Pacific Northwest from a scary collection of losers in the 70s and 80s toward the forefront of global pop culture into the 1990s and beyond. His prolific contributions include logo and magazine design. He was art director for the Seattle-based music bi-weekly The Rocket in the 1980s, as well as concert posters and album covers for bands such as Mudhoney and Soundgarden, associated with the Seattle-based record label Sub Pop. And so today we'll explore a place-based body of work that is also an event-by-event account of Seattle's vibrant music, cultural, arts, and nonprofit scenes in the 1980s and the 1990s. And we'll see how graphic design in its purest form is anchored in community, one that concentrates the essence of both time and place. We'll gain an insider's perspective on the genesis of a cultural movement termed by some as grunge, one that's rooted in the Pacific Northwest, but that continues to influence the world. And we'll spend some time together in paradox with the thoughts of someone who is at once anthropologist, but also commercial artist, a graphic designer whose work is nonetheless collected by museums. So let's welcome our guest today, graphic designer Art Chantry. Hello, people. Hello, everybody. (laughs) So great to have you. The applause is deafening. (laughs) So can you tell us where you grew up? Well, I was born in Seattle. And then when I was about 10, my family split up and we moved to Tacoma. And so I spent my formative years in Tacoma, which also describes why I'm the way I am. Most people know anything about Tacoma and knows that it's kind of, it's commonly referred to as the armpit of the Northwest. You know, it's like every big city has a blue collar trashy town right next to them. Like San Francisco has Oakland and New York City has New Jersey. Well, Seattle's got Tacoma, you know. And the interesting thing is, is all the stuff that became famous in Seattle actually came from Tacoma and you guys just stole it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, here, here's an example. 
Nirvana was never a Seattle band until they had a Nevermind had had been on the charts for six months, and he started getting royalty checks before they could afford to move to Seattle. They lived in Tacoma, you know. Uh, they picked Tacoma because they had dirt cheap rent, and it was equidistant between Seattle and Olympia, which they saw as their two main markets. You know, so that's where they developed. That's where they lived. They played at uh, punk clubs in Tacoma under a half dozen different names before they finally debuted in Tacoma under the name Nirvana. I mean, that's where it happened. That's why they sound like that. I, I'm convinced that Tacoma bands, think of the Sonics, think of the Wailers, think of that material. Tacoma bands always have this really kind of sardonic, tough edge to them, which kind of comes with living there. And then where in Tacoma did you grow up as a child? I grew up in Parkland, right next to McCord Air Force Base and Pacific Lutheran University. So there's two power structures in that town. And... When I moved away from Tacoma in 1974, 75, Tacoma had been voted murder capital USA. You know, it, statistically, it had the highest murder per capita rate in the country. But then the local TNT, Tacoma News Tribune, came out with its statistics, and Parkland had the highest murder rate in Tacoma. So the area that I was drinking and hanging around with and you know, getting into trouble with my friends and cruising for burgers— it was Kill City, USA. <laughs> and back in about 1973, uh, a buddy and I, he worked at the Atlas Foundry, and we both went to high school together. And he and I, we used to always start our evenings, particularly uh, for some reason, we always took Monday off. But, you know, we'd, we'd start at this tavern that was on South Tacoma Way called the Creekwater Dispensary. It's gone now. And um, a lot of the students from the law school would come over there in the evenings and play pool. And my friend and I got to be really good pool players. We'd team up, you know. And back then it was uh, coin-op rules. You put a quarter on the table, you challenge the table. If you win the table, the other guy has to try and play you. If you, if, if you win again, they have to buy you a beer. And we'd drink all night for free. And we were underage at the time, too. So it was all, you know, worked out perfectly. They had this one pool table in the back, and every time we went in there particularly about 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock, right after school at the law school next door, there's this one guy, devilishly handsome, kind of uh, not too tall. He was a little shorter than me, really chiseled, handsome face. He always wore a black turtleneck and white uh, flared pants. Um, his name was Ted. <laughs> uh, we used to love it when we saw him there holding the table because we knew he could beat him because all we had to do was shoot Will and he'd throw a tantrum and walk away, which is great. You know, he'd throw his pool cue on the ground and cuss and walk out of the joint. So we'd always win the table and drink for free from that point on. Years later, we figured out it was Ted Bundy we were beating at pool. <laughs> I used to play pool with Ted Bundy on a regular basis. So welcome to Tacoma. <laughs> So tell us about your higher education. You went on to college and... Uh, well, I graduated in 1972 from Washington High School. But I just, you know, being a poor white trash kid, I was just, I knew I was just going to go to Vietnam. That's all there was to it. And so I didn't make any plans. None of my friends did. We just, the last quarter of high school, my grade point went from a 3.8 to a 1.9. Because nobody just gave a damn anymore. We barely showed up for class. 
And if we did, we'd be drunk. I mean, it was like, hey, you're going to kill us anyway. What's the, I don't really, what, what is the point of this? And so, uh, you know, I was not suited for any kind of employment. You know, and then I uh, found myself adrift when the draft ended. Uh, they ended the lottery and about a year before I was supposed to show up for the physical and all of a sudden I had no plans at all. So I, I worked as a garbage man. I had other crappy jobs and stuff like that. And then I uh, used the fact I was poor to get into Pacific Lutheran University, which was about three blocks away from my mom's house. So I went to PLU for, for about a year. In fact, that's where I saw the Watergate hearings, 1973. And uh, we used to watch the Watergate hearings instead of go to class, which was a better education anyway. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17 break-in strike at the very undergirding of our democracy. And then I, I left there and I went to Fort Stillicum Community College, which is now Pierce College. And that was the best move I ever made. Those teachers were incredible. Best teachers I ever had anywhere ever. Absolutely brilliant people. Working people. People who actually did what they taught for a living. I ended up graduating there with an AA, and then I went to Western because I wanted to learn uh, printing. They had a program up there called Vicoed, and Vicoed is where you went, and they taught you how to use cameras, they taught you how to use printing presses, typesetting machines, um, TV cameras, you did video, early video and stuff like that. And I quickly discovered that Vicoed was not what I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to run a printing press. I, want, I was already making a living doing this graphic design, and I didn't even know that. I mean, I've been paying my rent and everything in Tacoma by doing little projects for people. I didn't even know it was called graphic design until one day I saw that word in a magazine in the school library. Oh, that's what I do. And so I thought Vicoed was where to go learn this stuff. And I got up there, and no— Vico had considered graphic design that art shit. And the art shit was on the top floor. It was a two-story building. The top floor was the art department. The bottom floor was Vico Ed, And they were at war with each other. They did not talk to each other. You could not take classes in both departments at the same time. Like I was. Because I wanted to learn the technology, but I wanted the art application. And so I basically couldn't declare a major in school without being banned from one department or the other. So I ended up pulling, at the end of my college years, I basically sat down and looked at which department I had the most credits in. And just by a skosh, I had more credits in the art department. So I ended up getting a degree in painting of all things. I hate painting. I have no respect. Don't, don't want to do it. Yet I have a degree in painting. So that is my college experience. I basically had to fight my way through the whole goddamn thing. So then what next after you got that degree at Western? Well, I uh, decided to f go down to see. I was living in Bellingham, graduated from there, and, you know, I had a, a girlfriend. And, uh, actually, at that point, she was a fiancé, and I moved to Seattle, and I thought, you know, I'm really good. I had put myself through college doing posters, theater posters, logos. I had this portfolio that was spectacular as a student, you know. So I thought, well, I'm just going to go down to Seattle, and they're going to roll out the red carpet for me, and I'll be rich. No problem. And that was like running headlong into a brick wall. Nobody gave a damn. I mean, to be in with Seattle is a nice town, so 
graphic designers being fair weather creatures moved there in droves. So there was like more graphic designers than you could spin on. You know, it was just incredible volume and a very, very, very small market. Competition was driven way up and prices were driven way down. I spent about five years trying to find a job, like a pay me a salary, pay me an hourly job. Uh, I was going to as many as five and six interviews a day, even on weekends. I mean, I found one of my old schedule books and it was incredible to look at. I couldn't get arrested in that town. To begin with, they'd look at my work and they'd go, oh, this is really great stuff. And then they'd ask, well, this one has a, it says a college on it. I go, yeah, I did this stuff when I was in school. Oh, well, then it doesn't matter. And they'd close it up, throw it out. And that would be it. I wouldn't have a shot. Mm. Uh, and so I basically became a freelancer because that was the only way I could make a living. And I, I freelanced first for big corporations. I did work for Safeco and I did work for Boeing and I did work for Nordstrom. And I'd wear a little suit and tie and go to these board meetings and terrify. I mean, I'd show them my portfolio. And the, I remember once going to this big room full of bankers sitting at one of those giant cartoon tables that they sit in those boardrooms, you know, built for 30 people. And it was completely full. And there's all these people looking at me. And they said, well, we have a special surprise today. We're going to have this, uh, this guy start our meeting today by showing us his portfolio. I go, okay. I stood there and I started showing my work and telling about what, how this was even blah, 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 blah. And at first they were all going, cool, neat. Wow, that's really great. Wow. And then after a while, it got kind of quiet. <laughs> and then uh, when I was all done, there was this dead silence. You know, imagine sitting in a room where an audience, you finish up and you look, everybody's looking at you and not saying a damn word. And suddenly this one woman way in the back cleared her voice and she goes, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you really like orange, don't you? I knew it was over at that point. You know, forget it. But when you were a freelancer in Seattle back then, you wanted a bank because banks stayed busy during the off season. Um, during the winter months when work just dried up, banks always had peripheral to work on. And it was little crappy three-panel brochures and, and newsletters and stuff that was just beneath your, your pride. But you did them because it got that damn rent paid, you know? And who are the most memorable of those early jobs from particularly the music industry? I've done literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of just 45 covers alone. I've probably done twice as many CDs and, again, another quarter more LPs. I've done thousands and thousands of records. Memorable? <laughs> I mean, I could tell you horror stories because those seem to hold up better. <laughs> um I did, you know, like I said, I made I made terrific friends. Like some of these people, like Dave Kreider at Estes Records, I started working with him back in about 1987, and you know, we still talk on the phone almost every day, and we're we're good buddies, and we still work together. You know, I working for them was a lot of work, but Dave. Kreider and I had like minds. We had similar backgrounds. You know, I originally studied to be an archaeologist. He studied to be an archaeologist. He went into radio and record making and played in bands. I went into making record covers and posters for guys who like him who played in bands. So it was one of those things that worked out really well. So if you want to know, you know, a positive story, it was like you met people like that. There are some really incredible people.
Also, there's a lot of really bad people. It's the music industry, you know. Uh, but at the same time, it was it was a fascinating thing to watch, especially when the grunge thing happened. Man, I you know being that close to the hub of a wheel of a culture explosion was amazing. I felt so lucky to actually be, you know, it's like being in the Haight-Ashbury during the hippie revolution or in London during the swing in London era, you know, to be in a place where an explode, culture explosion happens and be up close to it. I mean, at the time that went off, I was working at the Rocket, which was the local music kiosk, essentially. So stuff, you know, we, we knew all the scuttlebutt, everything flowed through there. Half the people that worked at Sub Pop used to work at the Rocket. I mean, it was just, it was a big overlap. And then to see it explode, wow. How did you get the gig at the Rocket? Yeah, I got the gig at the Rocket because uh, their current art director at that point, Helene Silverman, was was leaving and they wanted to find somebody to take the job and they couldn't. Nobody wanted to do the job because it was it was brutal work schedule. I mean, deadlines, magazine deadlines. It was a ton of work. I mean, you're having to paste together this magazine once a month and basically you would have to do it in two days. That meant no sleep for two days, you know. And then you'd have to jump in a car and drive down to Salem, Oregon to do a press check at, at, at one o'clock in the morning and... You know, I'd always get sick after production deadline. I, I would get the flu. I'd get a cold. I'd just get unknown sick, you know. Um, it was – it's like my entire system would collapse. And the average lifespan of an art director at the Rocket was somewhere around six months. Uh, I lasted – the first time I did it, it lasted nine months. And that was a new record at that time, so – but it was a magazine that covered local music, it covered local arts, news, even dabbled in sports. And uh, the thing was was uh, cranked out on a budget of, like my entire art budget for an 80-page magazine that you had to paste up and you had to hire, you know, photographers and illustrators. And we had to pay for like photostat paper and proofreaders and, you know, uh, and all our exacto blades and paper and glue and, you know, just all this stuff, you know, all came out of the budget of 500 bucks. We produced an 80-page magazine on 500 bucks. And that, that included my salary as art director, too, and my assistant, you know. And it, it's over the years, it inched up, and I do say inched. Um, but, you know, it was always a place that I went and worked my ass off for nothing, you know. And, of course, everybody hated the Rocket Seattle because it was the local news source. You hate the news source. Mm -hmm. You know, fuck you guys was always a – and, you know, we got banned from so many – some pop put us on the shit list so many times because we gave some record a bad review and they just couldn't take it, you know even though they used to work or even still worked at the thing. So when the Seattle grunge thing happened, the, the rocket was ignored because basically Sub Pop didn't like the rocket anymore. And when the news guys came, they would just point at everybody, go talk to them, go talk to that. Don't talk to the rocket. So the result was the rocket isn't a part of that history as it was documented, which is a shame because it was, it was an incredibly important thing. And the, the, 
stuff we covered, the the design in it, the the writing. Uh, people got TV careers out of that thing. People became uh, best-selling novelists and nonfiction writers. Uh, they, people ran magazines, art-directed magazines, internationally known rock photographers. F- photographing the most famous bands in the entire world started off with a rocket, you know, working for nothing because this was the one place they could practice their trade and learn. You could fuck up. You could make enormous mistakes in the rocket, and it was perfectly okay because it was ragtag. It was the way it worked. And we encouraged people to experiment. They might not get paid anything, but they could do whatever they wanted. You brought in that poster to share. Yeah. So can you tell the story of it? Well, okay. And why I, it's significant to you? The, this, this is a poster that I've, I've had since 1978. I was, I had just moved to Seattle. I was walking down the street. The U District, um, it, it was still in the throes of all its hippie ephemera. People walked around with names like, you know, Skylark and things like that. Um, posters were, you know, they, they were hippie posters. Also in the in the 70s, you had a big Art Deco revival that was associated largely with like uh, New York and uh, disco, of course, with like a giant Art Deco revival. Plus you had all the arena rock bands, you know, the Journeys and the Kisses and the Cheap Tricks and Foreigner. That's where music was. So you went to see them in arenas. And so when you saw the posters on the street, they were all there were people – advertising oriental massage or lost dogs or uh if it was a rock poster it would be for some blues act playing at a at a, at a bar that you could weren't old enough to get into because you were underage and everything and they were all done in these pretty fake psychedelic art deco styles and usually cheaply printed but there'd be lots of color and it's pretty <laughs> it was messy but it was pretty um and then i was walking along and then all of a sudden there was this damn poster on the telephone pole. And I, it's, I, I stopped dead in my tracks that I'd never seen anything like it, at least in the wild. I'd been studying Dada and early surrealism and, you know, all the, the isms, constructivism and all the movements and everything in modern art and, you know, were deeply influenced by them. And I really revered that stuff, but I'd never seen it in the wild like that. Here was Dada on a telephone pole in the middle of the hippie dippy U district in Seattle with no explanation, nothing. It's just like being hit in the face with a two by four or something like that. I, I that po- that's the actual poster. I took it off the wall very carefully, left the staples behind. I took it home to my apartment and taped it to the wall and just stared at it for weeks. You know, I was already making a living as a graphic designer. And then I saw this and I was just flattened by it. And it's a band called negative trend. And the the warm-up backs are the Cheaters and the Invaders, who are a couple of local uh, bands that, you know, didn't last very long but became famous bands later on. Um, Negative Trend was a San Francisco band. They're touring. Um, it's black and white. It's scrappy. There's not a straight line on the whole goddamn thing. It all looks like it was cut and pasted together out of chunks of Xerox junk. There's no respect for design concept, layout, form. It is just an atrocious mess, and it's beautiful. It is so alive. It still looks fresh. 40, 50 years later, you still look at it, and it makes your heart kind of jump. 
It's like, what the hell? This was all done by a guy named Franco. And Franco used to do the posters for the first punk rock club in Seattle called The Bird. Franco's real name was Frank Edie, and he was actually a painter. Uh, but he was also a punk, and he was the one that was doing these posters. And I know from the moment I saw that poster sitting right there, my life changed utterly. My artwork changed the way I think. My viewpoint got even darker. Even after Tacoma, my viewpoint got darker. And I, my, the work I was doing in my own work just changed completely, did a 180 direction change. I didn't do pretty anymore. And for the last 50 years, I have not done pretty for a living. You know, I do a lot of stuff. I manipulate the viewer in a million ways. Pretty's not one of them, you know. Um, most people think graphic design is just a way of making things look pretty. No, no, that's, that's not what I do at all. So, and that, that's the poster that changed my life. That chunk of paper right there, that Xerox. You have published a book called Instant Litter? Yeah, I did a book in the early 80s through Real Comet Press, who, uh, they, they were a wonderful outfit, and I approached the owner and I said, well, look at all these cool punk rock posters. I had a flat file drawer full of them. I go, look at this, look at this, look at this crazy stuff. And she, let's do a book. This was special. This was not normal stuff. And this this had meaning, you know. And so I had a drawer uh, full and I, I showed it to her and she said, I said, let's, let's do a book. And she said, okay. And so over the next six months, I put together a book that was a collection of my posters, a few other collections, a few other people I, I did a lot of interviewing with. I tracked down the actual artists of these things and I uh, did a book called Instant Litter. And it was all about punk rock posters in Seattle from about 1978 to about 1984. And, you know, you have to keep in mind, like, that that poster that I brought to show you was the very first punk rock poster I ever saw, and that was in 1978. That's when the very first punk rock club actually stayed open long enough to actually have more than one show, because the police and the fire department closed punk clubs down in Seattle for decades. You couldn't, again, the average lifespan of a club in Seattle was under six months, because you just, the authorities would close you down because they didn't like you, you know, we looked funny. Um and it, so it was It was really tough to actually have a club stay open. So that's – 78 is when punk rock – punk rock had been around in the Northwest probably since the early 60s with the Sonics, that rock band, the Sonics. I mean uh, Mojo Magazine in England starts their history of punk rock with the Sonics and they are very authoritative. And if you listen to the Sonics, yeah, all those grunge bands were trying to sound like the Sonics. That was all the grunge band's favorite bands. You just talk to those guys. They all say, oh, the Sonics. So, I mean, um, it had been around a long time, but as far as having a community that could sustain a club or a, a publication like The Rocket, which opened in 79, it struggled and struggled and struggled. The Rocket didn't turn a profit until the late 90s. I mean, it ran in the red all those years, and everybody worked there for nothing, you know, just to get their stuff mm. published, just mm -hmm. to find just to have a place to do what they wanted to do. They could get work at corporations like I was and stuff like that doing stuff that was frankly beneath you or you could work on stuff you loved for nothing and that's what the rocket became and that is one of the things that was the nucleus of the punk community in seattle and in the northwest 
So all these people that played in bands, we had bands that practiced in our work, workspace. We'd be up there pasting the letter with the magazine together and there'd be the, the F-holes or Red Dress would be practicing their act up there. Both uh, Jonathan and Bruce Pavitt used to write for the Rocket before they started Sub Pop. I mean, we had a Bruce had a column called Sub Pop USA. You know, he reviewed weirdo 45s from around the country. Um, so it was like it was all a community and plus they had KCMU and earlier Crab which this building used to be Crab and um, a lot of the people that worked at the Rocket were also the DJs on those stations playing their favorite records because it was a community owned radio station and they just they played their record collections and that was the only place to actually hear punk rock in Mm -hmm. Seattle Mm -hmm. you couldn't buy it in record stores either I mean, there's a couple of record stores in the U District that were real specialty, weirdo, crazy stores. There's always one or two of those around. But then the regular record stores, Tower Records, things like that, if you wanted to buy a local punk band that just released their record, you had to buy it in the import section, which meant they had to ship it first to England and then ship it back to Tower Records before they would even put it in the store. Of course, it'd be marked up three or four times higher. But that was how bad it was. Uh, my very first punk rock poster I ever did, every single copy was ripped off the walls and torn to shreds within 24 hours. I had a job on the U District where I was working on a catalog project on a second story, so we were looking down on the street. And I saw this kid walking down the street, and he had a satchel and he had an impact stapler, and he, was, he looked like a punk rocker, and he was stapling stuff onto telephone poles. You go in from pole to pole to pole, bang, 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 pull out another hook. It was a pink piece of paper, I remember, too. And then within five minutes, this crowd of people came marching up to the telephone pole, ripped the thing off, and tore it into little pieces and threw it on the ground and applaud. And then they'd move on to the next telephone pole, tear the thing down. And it was a, it was a flyer for the first Dead Kennedy show in mm-hmm. Seattle. Janine alone made people assault the poster. That's what the world was like. You know, in the late 70s, Seattle was all hippy-dippy, new age, rainbows, unicorns, earth tones, lots of lovely calligraphy, you know, and then there was disco, you know, and of course metal. The metal kids didn't like the punks either. In the early 80s, there was like open war between metalheads from uh, the east side, from Bellevue, the suburbanites, and the downtown bohemian punk rockers. And you, they'd literally run into each other on streets, and usually the punk rockers would get the shit beat out of them. And there'd be carloads of metalheads driving down 2nd Avenue looking for punk rockers to jump out and beat up, you know? So tell us more about Sub Pop and your involvement there and how that sort of, what the flow was. Well, there was a lot of record labels that tried to start. In fact, it wasn't even Bruce's first record label. He did Bomb Shelter Records back in the mid-80s uh, with um, Respitaglia, who ran Fallout Records, and they put out a record of U-Men stuff that is very collectible now. Um, and before that, he had a, a zine when he was a student at Evergreen College, he basically did a zine as his master's thesis and gave himself a degree in punk rock, and he did. He did that, and it worked. And the last three issues, three, four issues of uh, the sub-pop zine, which was called Subterranean Pop, 
which is you know where the name Sub Pop came from, were cassettes because cassette underground in the early 80s was really cool and really hot and amazing music was being produced on that and it was nothing like you'd imagine. Metallica started off as a tape band. You know, their first million-selling record was a private tape. You know, it's that's how that scene worked. So he was putting out these zines, these zines that had beautiful covers from his buddy Charles Burns, who also went to Evergreen, that were collections of bands he liked. That's all it was. And then, you know, it stopped, it disappeared, Sub Pop became a column in the rocket. While it was there, he released the New Man record on Bomb Shelter, and then he met up with Soundgarden and Jonathan Poneman and Bruce got together and they they all pulled the money and they put out the idea was to put out a Soundgarden record. That was it. Because Soundgarden, when they first popped up, kind of took everybody's breath away. Nobody could quite figure out where this was coming from. How did this band suddenly exist? in the clubs and bars of punk rock Seattle. It was just astonishing. And one of the things you have to keep in mind about Seattle is Seattle is was a podunk nowheresville town. Yeah, the, if you look at a map of the United States, there used to be on the McNeil Lair News Hour on Channel 9, they used to start their news show with a map of the United States, dark. And all the little lights would pop up. And these were all the... PBS affiliates were across the country. Well, when you get to the western half of the country, the lights go out. The bottom half, the southwestern, stayed bright. You had California. But from, from you know, California on up to the Canadian border, all the way east to Chicago was black. The only place they had a light was Seattle. Good evening. I'm Jim Lara. On the news hour tonight. And that's what Seattle was like. It was an island. You know, all the people in the country, in the big cities that were misfits and punk rockers and want to go to the big city, but were afraid of New York or LA, they go to Seattle. We had these factions that moved there. It was the, 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 I remember the Walla Walla group where there was a whole bunch of guys from uh, Reno, the Reno faction. Plus there were the local things from Bellingham or West Seattle. And there was all these groups of punk that would move to Seattle en masse, rent a house and it'd become a punk house. And those were the bands came from. You know, prior to that, bands were playing in taverns. After that, bands were playing in each other's basements. And these people were nerd burgers. They, they just picked up guitars for whatever reasons. All of them are lame. Nobody picked it up because they wanted to be a rock star. If they did, they really laughed at them. They did it because they wanted to do this. It, it was the right thing for them to do. By the time Sub Pop came along, and uh, they weren't the only record label in town. Pop Llama had been around longer. Uh, Estrus started at the same time as Sub Pop. But Sub Pop was the one that was connected to the rocket, to the center of the Seattle downtown scene. Therefore, it became the one that everybody worked with. They were us. And the bands that he started signing had been around for decades. They were all really good musicians. They were incredibly talented or they wouldn't still be around. It was an incredible talent pool they had to work with. I mean, their first record was uh, Touch Me, I'm Sick by Mudhoney. That's a song that made me pull over to the side of the road the first time I heard it on KCMU. I literally couldn't drive the car because what the hell is this? It was that powerful and that good. It was just devastating. And then I found out it was a local band named Mudhoney. I went, oh my God, something's happening in this town. Something's breaking. 
And then Screaming Life came out, and it was like, fuck, what is this? And then Tad started showing up, and it was like, oh, my God, you know? Nirvana would came along later, you know? And they, they were just those little friends of mud honey, you know? <laughs> They'd carry the instruments for them. <laughs> they lived in Tacoma. What the fuck? Where the fuck is that anyway? And uh, Mark Arm put out a record with a band called Mr. Epp that my wife who lived in a punk house with Bruce Pavitt, put out on her little record label called Pravda Records, and it became that song called Mohawk Man. That was like the first thing they put out. They put out a number of records, and then it all collapsed. But uh, And when Bruce uh, moved, he took Myrie's Rolodex. <laughs> and Myrie was the one booking all those bands at the Metropolis and the Gorilla Gardens and you know the all those the Rex and the Vogue. She was like this little teenage snotty punk rock kid, and she and her partners at Holy War Cadets were bringing all these bands like Big Black and Sonic Youth and Butthole Sufers and Husker Du and Live Skull and the replacements. These monstrous touring bands that were following the zine circuit in the 80s. That's what the circuit they developed. They'd hop in a van, they'd drive to a town that had a zine that reviewed their record, and they'd say, hey, where can we get a show? And they'd say, oh, go talk to Blob. And they'd go over to Blob, and they'd have a show that night. They'd make enough money to buy gas, go to the next zine town. And that became the circuit. The only other circuit was the big professional levels. You know, this was a circuit that fit in between. And... She was part of that. And, you know, the butthole surfer slept on her floor <laughs> and she lived, you know. She finally uh, walked away from punk rock entirely. She just got tired of being spit on, you know, because the dorky college boys would come down and go slumming and they'd think, oh, punk rockers spit on each other, right? And before you know it, you know, even the bands would walk off the stage. So, mm -hmm. But it was like this, this huge learning curve for all these people. So basically, bands like Mudhoney and Soundgarden and even Nirvana were able to tap onto that thing that had been established, you know. You, you can't underestimate the influence of K Records and Olympia either. That was Bruce Pavitt's favorite label by far. In fact, he modeled a lot of his ideas and thinking on Calvin's work. So so that, that whole thing was like, we were seeing this happen. It was fascinating. We would talk about it endlessly. We'd try to figure out where the next move would be. You know, it was like it's like watching a chess game developed by people who only knew how to play checkers. You know, and it was like, wow, he didn't really do that, did he? You know, oh man, he must have been stoned. But it worked because the talent was there. The talent was just extraordinary. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Art Chantry, be sure to join us next time for part two as Art shares more about what it was like to be working in the center of Seattle's global grunge explosion. He'll also ruminate about his lifelong passion for design and the distinction between graphic design and fine art, while also reflecting on propaganda, politics, and place. And he'll bring along a tiny shred of paper trash illustrating the inspirational power of the ordinary. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther, with photography by Travis Lawton. Administrative support from Mary Mansour. Theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway. Special thanks to Tim Kerr of the Lord High Fixers, Jimbo of Teen Generate, and Trent Wayne 
of The Mummies for additional music used in this episode. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.